Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. I thought we'd kick this week's conversation off looking at Microsoft Ignite. And some of the big news coming out of Microsoft Ignite this week was Microsoft's announcement that they are unveiling Mesh, their new social mixed reality platform. Yeah, so I, I got to tune in for uh, for part of this keynote. Uh, Alex Kitman, who is father of HoloLens uh, as well as Connect, took the virtual stage and uh, showed off how you could meet with people in a, a virtual setting. And the difference, I guess, between this and some of the previous attempts at virtual meeting spaces is that instead of having kind of an avatar that just maybe has your face and kind of more of an animated body, you actually see the whole person. And so they're referring to this as hollow portation, where uh, you, you know, it's, it's as if you're, you're standing there in the meeting and your, your body movements are, are reflected. And so this is, uh, you know, this is probably the most mainstream application that we have seen from the HoloLens. Uh, a lot of the previous efforts have been focused on things like design applications or remote training. And, uh, but it, it's certainly not the first uh, application we've seen aimed at this virtual kind of uh, collaboration. There's been a company that uh, here in New York that uh, met with a couple of years ago called Spatial, very cool technology. Uh, they've made a version of that freely available, not only for VR headsets, but but even smartphones, so you can get a sense of it. Uh, the question is, is this really going to drive mixed reality or virtual reality? And so far, the answer has been that it has not. Uh, this week, for example, I spoke to the Lenovo team uh, that is developing the Think Reality A3 uh, smart glasses that can project uh, augmented reality. And the way they described it, most of the applications driving it at this point are really those, those vertical applications because those are the ones where you can demonstrate ROI, which is important, uh, particularly if you're going to be investing in a headset like the HoloLens, which is you know, $3,000 or $3,500 a pop. So uh, very, very cool, uh, you know, very visually satisfying. Uh, and I'm sure it can do a lot to bridge the gap between just a Zoom conference and what people can do in person. Uh, but, uh, you know, probably at this point, more of a impressive technology, you know, future of technology demonstration versus something that's going to have an immediate market impact. I think it's interesting to see how Microsoft approaches this versus how others will approach it. Microsoft mm -hmm. always tends to approach these type of, of applications from a very enterprise-focused mindset. As much as they want to be hip and cool and consumer-centric, they still tend to focus these uh, from an enterprise perspective. And arguably, in recent years, I think they've done a better job of embracing that uh, that legacy that they have in the enterprise and and just, uh, you know, going with it, recognizing that that's their, their, their place. HoloLens is clearly a high-end AR, you know, mixed reality headset designed for enterprise applications and industrial applications beyond just consumer applications. 
And so a lot of their use case scenarios that they highlight with Mesh is a, about professionals having virtual meetings. And yet I think we see a lot of the experimentation for this type of uh, you know, platform really playing out at least early on in the consumer space. It's mm. um, you know, people getting together, social gatherings, kids playing games or doing other things like that. So it'll be I- interesting to see if AR, VR, you know, these kind of mixed reality uh, appearances, uh, you know, specific to the, to the platforms show up m- more so on the enterprise side or more so on the, um, on the consumer side. And, and that was certainly something they touched on, on at the keynote. One of the guests was uh, Niantic, the company that is uh, very well known for uh, Pokemon, uh, the, the Pokemon augmented reality game, Pokemon, and, uh, and the, uh, the Harry Potter uh, Wizards Unite augmented reality game. And for Microsoft, really, they are a little more agnostic uh, about the application as long as it finds a way to tie into Azure, uh, their, their cloud platform that has, uh, I think, been one of the two biggest pushes that we've been seeing from the company. Uh, probably other, the other one has been Microsoft Teams uh, in terms of the front end with Azure at the back end. And HoloLens and these applications in many ways are just a way to continue to drive demand for Azure cloud services. Yeah. And, you know, I think a, a lot of this is coming out at a time where we've been at home for an extended period of time. We've been working remotely for an extended period of time. And then the, the question it, that lingers over all of this and looms over all of this is, are we going to go back to the office? Are we going to go back to meeting with customers and clients? Or when we flying across the country to attend conferences? Or might we use some of these other uh, technologies. Arguably, I think you could make the case that that virtual reality didn't really pick up as significantly as it might have. Uh, some oh, of that, I I, some of that, I think, is because the infrastructure wasn't in place for it. The headsets weren't, uh, you know, widely uh, available, or at least they weren't already in people's hands. And uh, so we, you know, we defaulted to webcams or other things like that. Just, just too cumbersome and expensive. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think we're going to see a wave of smart glasses in the coming year that are going to be lighter, less expensive, a little less conspicuous. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they, they solve all the issues. And I, I think that those vertical applications are, are still going to be the dominant ones for the next few years. Yeah. And obviously I see a lot of great potential in AR, VR, mixed reality uh, applications on the industrial side, as well as on the consumer side. Uh, I, I'm not totally convinced that it's around conversations. I think it's mm. around being able to share your view with other experts who might be able to help you troubleshoot problems or, uh, you know, trying on... Training training has tr- been, you know... Yeah kind of a horizontal enterprise. Definitely training and simulations and with respect to training. So you can immerse yourself in an an environment that you may not always find yourself in and do emergency training in those type of environments. Uh, Again, kind of in industrial settings, I think make a lot of sense. Uh, In in other news this week, we had a a lot of 
announcements in the kind of music space. Square announced that they would be acquiring a major stake in Jay-Z's streaming service title. Jay-Z will join the Square's board. So we have a fintech company acquiring a, um, a music streaming platform. We saw the Kings of Leon announced that they would debut an album as part of a, an NFT package. This is a, essentially part of a token that would then allow them to unlock perks like limited edition vinyl and, and maybe concert seats uh, or, or uh, artwork. Uh, so we're seeing the use of cryptocurrency show up in, in how to monetize music. And um, so we've got a, a lot happening there. We also saw that uh, Apple announced that they would not be allowing uh, clarified. Yes, click clarified that they would not, not allow users to set a default music service in iOS 14.5. So a lot of music announcements this week. Yeah, the uh, the first two I see is as pretty closely related. I mean, you look at a uh, Square acquiring a majority interest in Title, and it's it's kind of a head scratcher. You know, it's not exactly like when. Uh, Apple bought Beats, uh, where they also acquired a streaming service that ultimately became uh, Apple Apple Music. But uh, but really, the the key draw there and the natural synergy uh, was Beats's uh, head headphone business, which was highly complementary uh, to Apple's. Even though Apple has uh, arguably gone on to even greater success with. AirPods, which is a, a very different type of certainly marketing message and you know uh, marketing message and, and potent, possibly target audience than uh, than Beats, uh, and I think you know part another part of the reason that they bought Beats was frankly to get some creative input from people like um, uh, like Jimmy Iovine and uh, and Dr. Dre, and there may be some of that at play here too with. Uh, Jack Dorsey getting Jay-Z uh, on, onto the board. But, uh, but I think that, uh, you know, the other announcement that you mentioned, Sean, really, really uh, helps to explain it in some ways even better that, uh, you know, title was, was struggling a bit. Uh, the streaming music model is very tough, very difficult for artists to uh, reap a, a lot of money out of that uh, model, unless you've, you've already made it very, very big, uh, and you see some of the these alternative revenue streams, uh, concerts, which will hopefully come back, merchandise, uh, you know, all kinds of who knows, cameo kinds of uh, kinds of appearances as other ways for artists to monetize. And it sounded like that was the impetus, according to the statement that uh, Dorsey put out, justifying the the investment in title. It feels to me like Square wants to be a, a platform, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. I see that constantly that all, all of these digital products are trying to build out platforms and build out ecosystems. Square feels like they have been able to provide a key service to merchants and perhaps they'll build out and, ex and extend the services that they offer merchants. And here they are trying to build out the type of uh, services that they might be able to offer uh, musician. So it's almost like a one-stop shop. You can come to Square and you can get access to all of these different things. And and because we have your interests uh, centered to our 
to our efforts, then, you know, maybe the, the monetization mechanisms look differently than uh, something like a Spotify or a different streaming service where, where the underlying streaming service is trying to be profitable and trying to make money. Uh, t- t- you know, Tidal was designed to be a streaming service for musicians, by musicians, and it feels like Square wants to, to continue that while at the same time adding in other services that, that might, be, you know, might be useful. Um, I think that to me, the, the announcement that Kings of Leon would be releasing their album as part of a, a non-fungible token uh, package is really interesting as well. Again, here it's companies trying to create digital scarcity around certain things and then making that uh, available and also kind having of, that that digital ownership clear kind of kind of cool to see a band other than radiohead you know trying to do something cool in the uh, in the digital space and uh you know the the square move it is kind of a it, it is an interesting hybrid between digital and physical I, I mentioned some of those physical products that they may want to help artists move but I think this is also an attempt for them to get deeper into digital to your point about trying to become more of a platform because you know, we're probably seeing less of those credit card swipes happening these days and you know, much more of the economy is moving to services. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in other audio news, we saw that Qualcomm this week announced their Snapdragon sound. So they are making efforts to improve the sound experience. So Snapdragon Sound, it is a, um, you know, right now, the, 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 there's a school that the, we're, we're moving toward a triad, basically, of personal devices, the smartphone, the earbuds, uh, and the smartwatch. Clearly, uh, Apple is doing very well in those categories um, with the Apple Watch and AirPods. And so uh, the question for Qualcomm's partners, almost all of which compete with Apple, is uh, how do we how do we get better? How do we how do we answer that? And at least on the earbud side, one key to doing that is tighter integration between the smartphone and the earbud. So that's really what Snapdragon Sound is designed to do. They're starting off with the Snapdragon 888, which is their flagship processor, and uh, between optimizing that and some of Qualcomm's chips and other technologies in the earbud. Uh, they can attack things like audio quality and latency uh, and, uh, and connectivity drop-offs. And, uh, you know, they're at least claiming by the numbers that they're going to have the best-in-class performance uh, on, on all those fronts. So uh, one, inter- one angle that I find interesting about it is that today, a lot of Qualcomm's earbud partners are traditional audio brands, uh, or at least accessory brands, Bose, Anchor, Bang & Olufsen, Bowers & Wilkins, uh, and they have a strong opportunity to get their smartphone partners more active uh, in the earbud uh, space. I've seen a few companies do it, um, Vivo, uh, part of uh, BBK in in China, uh, OnePlus, uh, which uses... um, uh, Qualcomm's chips, uh, you know, has also done a couple of earbuds, uh, but uh, but there's a, a much broader uh, opportunity. Xiaomi, one of the companies that uh, is one of the launch partners, 
And you also need content for this. And uh, Amazon Music, you know, you talked about Tidal before, one of the first companies to offer high definition uh, streaming. Uh, now Amazon Music, uh, one of the launch partners here saying they're gonna offer it too. And uh, of, of course, you know, if Qualcomm's involved, you know, it has to have a 5G angle. So uh, they love it because, uh, you know, as you have higher resolution music, it, it creates another reason to, uh, to adopt 5G. I think there's a, there's a big push too for musicians to think about how they monetize their, uh, their experiences in a concertless world that we've been mm. living in. And we've seen them use games and, and game platforms to launch music initiatives. Even prior to the pandemic, we saw that, but uh, we saw it pick up during the pandemic or doing you know, essentially virtual concerts. Now we're going back into, uh, you know, to presumably to a world where we can meet in person, we can go to concerts in person, we can go to conferences in person. But I, I wonder if just like we're seeing with business conferences, virtual is remaining a key component of that. And we're seeing the, the chance to stream the content. I wonder if, uh, if musicians will also see that as an additional revenue stream. So if you don't want to travel for the concert, but you still want to attend the concert, then here's some virtual options. And that, uh, you know, that music quality and fidelity is going to be an important aspect when it comes yeah, to... Absolutely. I, I think that, and I think that they're eager to have uh, use technologies in ways that enrich that experience and bring it closer to the in-person experience to just, you know, watching them perform on a screen. For example, a few weeks ago, I spoke to a startup working on some little box that can emit lights in response to, you know, certain signals that can be programmed. Uh, the idea is to create the kind of immersive light show kind of experience that you would see if you were uh, attending a concert in, in person. You know, I've, I've seen many of these audio related announcements over the years and, and very often they have a, an artist, uh, you know, speak about what it means to them to have access or for consumers to have access to better, higher quality audio. I know, Sean, you, you've seen many of them at CES over the years from a, a lot of the home audio guys. And the artists always invariably say the same thing, you know, we want consumers to get closer to the experiencing the kind of sound, the quality of sound that we hear in the studio. You know, we've been we've been hearing that pretty much since at least the days of the compact disc. You know, and so uh, and I, 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 you know, I'm sure there's, uh, I'm sure it's, uh, I'm sure it's, it's legitimate. You know, I'm sure it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a key motivator. It, it makes for uh, a better experience. It, it makes for a better, uh, you know, deeper connection with the art. Uh, and, uh, and, and it has been a challenge in, in mobility where let's face it, you know, a far greater percentage of our music listening is, is happening. And there have been, you know, it's, it's just been far more difficult to get to that level of experience uh, with these, uh, you know, with these earbuds uh, up to this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. And presumably, we start to see this show up on other devices as well. It's not just a, a mobile phone, you know, headset ear earpiece experience, but we start to see uh, this content show up in, in other places. Already, we're seeing that in the ability to 
do multi-room audio on multiple devices. We, we saw another news this week coming out from CounterPoint Research that global smartwatch shipments, for example, were uh, up marginally in 2020, up just one and a half percent. So, you know, we saw them perhaps take a, a, a step backwards in 2020, despite some growth, much slower growth than we've seen in recent years. But arguably, these will become increasingly important devices as well for not just fitness and health, but also for streaming music. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was a point that uh, uh, Qualcomm made. Um, you know, I launched a, a new podcast this week called uh, Text Changes. Uh, I invite all of our listeners to, uh, to have a listen to that one. And our first guest was James Chapman of Qualcomm. And uh, he indeed talked about how uh, you know, the smartphone is the starting point. They want to bring this to PCs. They want to bring it to cars. Uh, he talked a bit about uh, the role that the smartwatch begins to play. The, uh, in terms of uh, the counterpoint numbers, you know, was, it probably wasn't too surprising that Apple's, uh, uh, Apple watch numbers were up. A little surprising that Huawei numbers were up, uh, you know, given the challenges that they've been facing with the U.S. sanctions. Uh, but part of the, uh, one of the advantages that Huawei has in its smartwatch business as opposed to its phone business is that it is not reliant on Android or Android Wear or really any Google technology. It, uh, uh, it uses its homegrown uh, operating system for the watches, much as uh, Samsung does. And uh, you know, some of the companies that were flatter down uh, included uh, Fitbit, uh, which of course Google has, uh, has acquired and uh, you know, just continues to show kind of the struggles that, that Google has in, in the device space. Uh, the Fitbit acquisition was seen as a way for them to infuse some, some energy and new ideas into their wearable portfolio, their smartwatch portfolio. Uh, but so far, we we really haven't seen action on that front yet. Well, that's probably a great place to uh, end this week's episode. But before we sign off, Ross, where should we go if we want to listen to your interview with Qualcomm's James Chapman? So it's available both as a podcast and on YouTube. You can check out the podcast at anchor.fm slash textchanges, T-E-C-H-S-C-H-A-N-G-E-S, textchanges. And on YouTube, if you do a search for that word, it should pop right up. Great. So check it out. Uh, thanks again for joining this week's episode of Techspansive. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Duberbeck. And you can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening.